I couldn't function with it at all. And somebody brought me a full can of pop and I rested it on my leg. And it was so strange because it felt like pain, like shards of glass. Mm -hmm. And what I know now is the um, part of the spinal cord that carries the messages of pain. There was a lesion there. Welcome to Freedom to Know Wellness, a disability advocacy platform to hold space and give a voice to those with complex medical and chronic pain conditions, female reproductive challenges and miscarriages, and address other disability-related topics, including how these experiences affect one's mental health. Our goal at Freedom to Know Wellness is to connect and bridge the gap between patients and the medical and holistic community in which they seek treatment. I am your host, Michelle Samuels. Now, before we start, please remember to subscribe to the Freedom to Know Wellness channel at FTK Wellness to catch all of our content and click the bell for notifications on new posts. If you enjoy our content, consider contributing financially to aid with the Freedom to Know Wellness production by clicking the at FTK Wellness PayPal link on our channel's page or found in the description box below. Every bit helps. Multiple sclerosis is a chronic disease that can commence between ages 20 to 40. It attacks the body's central nervous system by destroying the myelin sheath, a tissue that surrounds and protects the nerve fibers, brain, and spinal cord. As the myelin sheath is destroyed, scar tissue forms. This scar tissue is called sclerosis, also known as plaques or lesions. When these nerves are damaged, it hinders the conduct of electrical impulses to and from the brain. There are several side effects to this condition, varying in individuals from mild to severe. These are some of the many common symptoms. Optic neuritis, blurred or double vision, red-green color distortion, difficulty walking, an abnormal feeling or pain such as numbness, burning sensation to cold, prickling or pins and needles, this is also known as parathesia. Other common symptoms are slurred speech, speech problems, loss of sensations, muscle weakness, spasmatic, and more. Managing multiple sclerosis as a sole condition is difficult enough with its vast debilitating symptoms. But when compounded with other chronic pain complex medical conditions, it doesn't make the experience any easier. Today on Freedom to Know Wellness, I am speaking with Dale Nevison and her journey managing a severe case of multiple sclerosis and the chronic pain condition, fibromyalgia. Let's jump into this interview to learn all about her story. Please advise, the information provided in this episode is from the opinions of the interviewee and interviewer. For further medical advice, please contact your practitioner. Now, let's start the interview. Today on Freedom to Know Wellness, the podcast, I would like to introduce one of my past educators, actually, a mother, partner, but with the topic we are addressing today, a multiple sclerosis and fibromyalgia warrior. Her name is Dale Nevison. Welcome, Dale, to the Freedom to Know Wellness podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so wonderful to see you, Michelle. So good to see you, too. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, let's see. I just turned 60 this year. I've had MS for mm, close to 24 years. Okay. Uh, I used to teach in the Durham Board of Education. I 
taught visual arts. I was head of visual arts at Pine Ridge Secondary. uh, Unfortunately, MS did end my career rather early. I think I was 12 years into teaching and had to go on disability leave very early. Um, But I have two wonderful kids, one who's moved to North Carolina, one who still lives with us. Wow, nice. We still live here in Richmond Hill, and we're all muddling along and getting through this. So you mentioned that it was about 12 years into your teaching that you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Were you having any symptoms prior to your diagnosis or like what was the, what led up to your diagnosis is what I'm trying to say? Well, it came on rather suddenly. It was one July, just uh, finished tidying up my classroom. I was moving schools. I was actually going to be moving to a new school in the fall. Mm-hmm. A stressful time. There was a lot of labor disruption. It was a seriously stressful, stressful year of teaching. And I was at the hairdresser one day and vertigo hit me. And I got home and my legs just felt kind of heavy. And I went to the ER and they just kind of rolled their eyes and said, ah, you're probably uh, um, suffering from stress. I said, no, it's July. <laughs> School ended. <laughs> Well, this is not a stressful time now. It started progressing over a few days and I ended up back in the ER because my legs, I lost feeling and they were really heavy and the dizziness was absolutely, I couldn't function with it at all. And somebody brought me a full can of pop and I rested it on my leg and it was so strange because it felt like pain, like shards of glass. Mm -hmm. And what I know now is the um, part of the spinal cord that carries the messages of pain. There was a lesion there. And uh, so I was only registering cold as pain, not as cold. I couldn't feel cold. And they kind of rolled their eyes at me, sent me home. They probably thought I was crazy, right? And um, I ended up in my Jeep office because I had trouble the next day urinating and I dragged myself up the stairs to his office and he back and called the doctors at the ER and said get an MRI done right away something's wrong her reflexes everything went very fast Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of an unusual presentation right it usually doesn't come on and within 12 hours I was completely paralyzed from the chest down oh my gosh well, yes. that's rapid. Oh, I was in a panic because I had just resigned from the school board because I had taken a position in um, York. And um, I was afraid because uh, I would be on probation for two years mm-hmm. and everything were with the other board and my resignation had already ended. Anyway, it was just a absolute chaos. They admitted me. They gave me a ton of solumedrol. And told me it would probably recover. It still wasn't an MS diagnosis at that stage. It was called transverse myelitis. So they thought, okay, she'll get the solumedrol and recover. I didn't fully. Um, I ended up the Durham board. Um, thankfully, they were very compassionate. And they, they took back my resignation and accepted me back so that my benefits would stay because I never... Okay. Re- yeah, luckily, I've had some really um, strong support in those years that got me through that. And so, yeah, I never was able to return to school. Um, 
The good news is, though, that after about nine months, I started to feel feeling in my feet again. Okay. And And from that point until now, I'm still walking. That's very good. That's very good news. Very good to hear. The damage accumulates, you know, over time. Sometimes when you get hit with these flares, if you can get it treated right away, if I got on Solumedrol right away, Mm -hmm. I would be able to return sometimes to baseline. If the damage is allowed to fester, sometimes Mm -hmm. won't go back to baseline with that. So that's the story of how the diagnosis kind of happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was pretty, it didn't fit a textbook as these things often don't. And by the time it was, they got me to a neurologist down at St. Mike's. It was about six months. And he thought, oh, it's just whatever it is. It's benign. You're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And then that January, I was hit with another major flare that landed me in down there. And it was a young resident who just said, you know, look, I think we need to run an MRI again. And he goes, yeah, there's a second lesion now. You fit the diagnosis criteria. Goodness. In the middle of the night, I'm at St. Mike's and this sweet nurse, a nurse who obviously been at St. Mike's for a long, long time because she was a nun. Um, and St. Mike's, I haven't seen too many nuns at St. Mike's since, but she wrapped me up and she did old-time nursing and I just thought it's going to be okay. Yes. Yeah. You know, sorry, you mentioned about that nun and um, St. Mike's Hospital that I usually go to. And I remember there's a nun there. I had to go to Emerge and there was this nun there. And I remember thinking, oh, wow. And she was very nice. And I'm thinking, could that be the same nun? But I, I guess, you know, different individuals who are from those denominations, being nuns or practicing in that way, do give back in, in the hospital vicinity. So, but wow. Wow. That's, that's intense, very rapid. And it's funny how it took an intern to be able to really advocate and push to be able to say, Hey, you know what, this is not something that's short-term. It's actually something that is happening and it's long-term and it advocated for you to be able to have that other MRI for your diagnosis or completion of your diagnosis. It, I think because he had the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. As he was in school and he had a presentation to do the next day. So I became the presentation, which was me. So he got to play with my eyes. I uh, developed double vision. That's like pretty diagnostic of MS because one eye was completely off. There was clearly something going on. It then presented it the next day. And that's how the diagnosis happened. And I think... uh, the neuro that I originally saw came in was Easter Monday, Easter Sunday. And he actually came in and sat with me. Uh, I was surprised that he came in. So he was quite apologetic that he missed it and kind of been dismissive. So he took over my care from that point on. And Avi, the young resident, was in to visit lots. And I still remember his first name. That's how central he kind of was goodness but i'm glad that the, that the doctor at least was willing to come in and you know to address that the fact that they they missed this this was an error on his part and that he's willing to acknowledge that you know but i hope you received the best care starting from then the, the care in the early years mm-hmm. 
about 1999, 2000, uh, the access to care was very, very different than it is now. Mm-hmm. And the MS clinic then, it was in a different location in the building. It was the old part of St. Mike's. It almost looked like the movie out of The Elephant Man. And I was in this old room with old beds. But um, the care was excellent. And the, do- the neurologist at the time, he's since retired, was very aggressive from the start. In the fourth year, he put me on a chemotherapy. It just knocked everything back. I was on chemo for four years, a drug called Novantrum. Okay. And what did it do, you said? It knocked my immune system mm-hmm. out and put me into remission for four years, completely into remission. But you can only stay on it for that amount of time because it's uh, very toxic on the heart. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky to get on that drug. He had put me on the list for the trial for the um, uh, stem cell transplant. Trials were just starting. And then they lost patient seven, died in the trial in Ottawa from liver failure. It would have meant um, having to stay in hospital for three to four months in complete isolation because it uh, the procedure completely eliminates your immune system and you have to start building up again with vaccines and everything. And mm-hmm. I had really young children and my husband had, was self-employed trying to hold down a business where he was working six, seven days a week. It was just, it wasn't a possibility. And, and then they lost patient seven. And so I, I was really leery about the risk versus the benefit at that point. So did you continue with the trial or did you decide to extract yourself from it? I didn't continue. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that is scary because you have dependents. It's not like it's just you and you say, okay, I'm just going to try it, but you have your husband and you have your children. Yeah. That's not a risk that you're willing to take at all. Oh no, no, they were 10 uh, and five, sorry, five and yeah, five and 10. So how far did you get into the trial? Did you see any benefits and any benefits, at least during the time where you're, when you were in the trial? I was only just starting the process of considering it where they were, uh, the neurologist was explaining the procedure. We were trying to make a decision to begin it. And one of the things at the time that he was very cognizant about was that the consent for it required somebody to be able to understand. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, at least cognitively, I was a lot better off than I am now. And I was able to understand uh, how the data worked and what it meant. And uh, we both decided, though, that after patient seven died, that with the kids at home, this wasn't a good idea. So with where you're at now, your mobile, are you using any devices at all? Yeah, I flip through devices sometimes. So um, in the house, I can kind of wall walk and, you know, stumble around. I use a cane um, sometimes, but outdoors more and more now I'm using a roll later. And I do have a manual chair now that I can go longer distances. I haven't really been too far since COVID, mm-hmm. uh, you know, needed to be out that far. I've been able to manage with the role later for the most part, but 
I'm back using the cane though, getting to physio. So Good. it goes back and forth. You know, the stuff it's like it's like having coats in a closet. And when you need the heavy coat, you put it on. If it's really cold and snowy and you can put the rain jacket on when you just need a little bit of shelter. <laughs> no, it's true. And the um the mobility wheelchair, or is it the like a scooter they're using? I had a scooter originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, scooter I don't use anymore. I'm probably going to sell it because it requires a fair bit of balance to get on and off. And yes. It's, uh, it's hard to get into a vehicle without a lift, um, but I don't have the balance. And after taking out a couple of displays and stores, <laughs> trying to reach up to get things off cans and hitting the throttle and, you know, just about taking out other customers and things is really not a safe option yes and also not good for posture as you lean forward and it's so not great long term uh, the manual chair is uh custom fitted i sit better in it the seating is better and it keeps you more stable yeah that yeah, keeps me from sliding over or you know keeps keeps me upright and as much as possible. Sometimes I just sit in it in the desk as well. It's that comfortable with the seating. Actually, I've been told that from quite a few of the people that I know that use them. They say it, the back support, this one lady said, oh, I could even sleep. And I said, really? She's like, yes, it's so comfortable compared to when she had to use the scooter. So I'm glad you have that because you need the benefits of whatever type of devices that can help you to be, find freedom, support, etc. And uh, I mean, not to be embarrassed, of that that you know that you need to use it and it allows you to you know find joy in days and getting out there that's the main thing Mm -hmm. that's true that is true so you also mentioned to me at least and I'll let my um, listeners know you did mention that you also have fibromyalgia now was this a later diagnosis or was the diagnosis went hand in hand yeah, it was a much later diagnosis, although looking back, it may have actually preceded the MS because I've had migraines since my teens, bad migraines, and sometimes that can go along with it. But mm-hmm. I ended up down at the Rum- Rumsey Center for Physiotherapy, and they specialize in MS therapy there. And uh, there was a physiatrist, which is different than a therapist. Mm-hmm therapists they're actually board certified with neurology and it, uh, she was a medical doctor a uh, dr bruna really brilliant um physio physiatrist who when she was doing my exam my neuro exam noticed i was having like a lot of pain when i was asked to push my legs and she'd have my hand against uh her hand against my shin it would elicit like a lot of pain that shouldn't mm-hmm. have been but then she got curious and started looking for all the pressure points and went, oh, okay, well, that explains a lot. Yes. Fibromyalgia. <laughs> so, so it's hard to distinguish what part of the pain is from fibromyalgia and what's from MS. MS. Although- mm-hmm. Please note, the feeling of pain when touching something cold, as Dale mentioned, is also felt with fibromyalgia. So it could be due to either one of these conditions or both. But with MS, it's more severe. Yeah, I can usually tell now that uh, the difference between what's what 
um, just with experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You said Dr. Bruno, is she also working? Has she ever, or is she currently working that you know of at um, Toronto General Hospital? She could be, she could be. I know that the RUM, uh, Toronto Physiotherapy is the hospital, it's I think next to Mount Sinai. Um, oh, the Toronto Rehab. Yes. Yeah. So she's out of Toronto Rehab, but I saw her at the center that uh, was on, oh, what's that, Bayview, um, near Sunny Sunnybrook Hospital. There's a center there. She was doing my rehab care for many years. And I went into a program at the Rumsey where I go two, three days a week. Mm-hmm. It could have been Sunnybrook. So I've been, I've been made aware of her. So I couldn't remember if it was Toronto General Hospital or if it was Sunnybrook, but I have been made aware of her and I heard she's excellent. Absolutely outstanding. Yes. It's, it's funny because for a lot of people who have fibromyalgia, you go through, you know, the barrage of tests to confirm, first of all, it's real out. Um, if you have MS, if you have lupus, um, there was another one that they tested you for. And then when all this fails and they realize, okay, you have all the trigger points, you have all those other things and it's fibromyalgia, but to have both, that is very difficult. I've heard from other MS patients that I know several of them have that diagnosis as well and also find that the pain from the fibromyalgia exceeds the pain that they're usually getting from the MS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whenever I talk to my other MS friends that don't have fibromyalgia and I talk about my pain, they're like, why is it like that all the time? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, so when you mentioned that you have both, I was like, oh, dear God. (laughs) That is a killer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my mom also has fibromyalgia. Yeah. So she was diagnosed years ago with chronic fatigue syndrome and then fibromyalgia. And she they put her on like amitriptyline years, uh, years ago. It was awful. She really suffered with that a lot. Um, and that was years before I got MS. But um, I think they said at the time her Epstein-Barr titer was very high. Yes. Um, She had obviously reactivated or something. And she, when she was pregnant with me, she had mono. So I often wonder, you know, there's like a researcher interested in how that happened. So if she developed, you know, fibro and CFS in a, you know, a short time frame for me starting to develop MS, what's the connection with the Epstein-Barr virus, that EBV virus that they know is probably implicated in MS now? Um, this is something I, I'm, I will be addressing in the blog and as well as um, individual podcasts, but Epstein-Barr, Lyme disease are very common for creating fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, you know, they go hand in hand. And one of the things when I was first diagnosed, I remember it was a whole lot of us that were in this clinic um, going for trigger point injections, seeing this rheumatologist, seeing the physiatrist. And there was this woman that was there with her son. And for me, I was 25 and my mom was with me and I'm seeing her son and he's a teenager. And so I asked her and she goes, she has fibromyalgia and now her son has fibromyalgia. 
And we're realizing that there is a hereditary effect with fibromyalgia to pass it down to the children. And th that, that really shook me. And when you mentioned that she had Epstein-Barr during her pregnancy, it's, it's strongly connected. That's very connected. If there's any strong evidence that I've ever heard, it's right here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because that's one of the things I said, okay, well, you know, do you have any other family members that has MS? And I have other family members that have MS. And they realize that there's all that connection genetically that it can affect people in certain ways. My other aunt had um, myostema gravis. And the way my body was acting up, they were wondering, oh, is it that? That was the other thing I was trying to remember. If it's that, and thank God it wasn't, but it's it seems like there's a connection within those type of autoimmune, arthritic diseases, et cetera. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, they're making like links with it too to Alzheimer's even, mm -hmm. right? I didn't know that. In the last couple of years as well. Well, so, it makes sense with the with the brain fog that we go through. Oh yeah, that brain fog. <laughs> Try to explain that to somebody, right? It's like like trying to think through wet cement. Yes, yes, it is. It is. Um, I, I explained that. I said it's literally like a, a, a thick fog, and you're trying to pinpoint the words, and I'm trying to separate it, and I'm like, I know it's there, and it just everything just gets combined, and then you can't see what you're trying to say. And, and everyone goes through some type of uh, fog as human beings, we do, but then it's when it gets extreme. And, and as you said, we're like, we're trying to explain, we know the general type that, okay, people go through general fog, but when it's extreme, it's like, mm, it's not the same. And it makes, it makes you question your intelligence, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, just cognitive. Like I remember trying to think of person's names and I'm going through the alphabet, trying to see if I can remember the first letter, maybe I can remember the rest of the word. <laughs> uh, I just have invented language and my family gets it right. Like uh, instead of the spatula, I'll go with the flippy flippy thing for the frying pan. <laughs> they all speak the same language now because they just know. Yeah, they know what you mean. <laughs> I used to um, run this soup kitchen and I would tell the, uh, the volunteers that are there and I would tell them, I said, listen, I said, I may be, I may mean the frying pan, but I may say the refrigerator, just look where I'm pointing to. They know what I'm saying. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And after a while they started catching on, they're like, what? And I'm like, no, no, that, that. And they're like, oh, okay. Yes. We get what you're saying. <laughs> I figure out a new way of communicating. Like the nerve pathways just have to reroute around yes. and come back, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned some of the medications. Um, you listed some of the medications. What current medications that you're on and which ones were you taking before and you found that didn't have the best effects? And then your medications probably changed to something better. Well, the development of science with MS medications has really changed quite a bit over the last 23, 24 years. I'm currently on a drug called Mazent, which for me is a last kind of resort one because I run out of medications. So Mazent or Saponamod is related to another drug called Galenia. And it, um, what does it attack? I'm trying to think, one of the cells, T cells? B cells, I can't remember, they, they all affect like different cells in the immune system, but this one 
dampens down my lymph, uh, lymphocyte count, which is almost non-existent at this point. So it's like a chemo drug. So I have no immune system, but it means that it's not actively attacking, uh, you know, central nervous system um, tissue at this point. It might... MRI is stable for the first time in two years, but it's not likely to improve anything. It's just preventing some ongoing damage. Because in Jan January of the year, it was COVID, that would have been, it would have been a year like 2021, um, I had another massive attack that caused dystonia. It looked almost like seizures. And so they put me on that to dampen down my immune system things seem to have calmed down i'm not having back to back to back attacks um, so with the seizures did they diagnose it as a dystonia or did they diagnose it as something else it's a weird type of they call it dystonic posturing so it looked like a seizure when it happened to be mm -hmm. like five to ten minutes my right arm it started with my hand and then eventually over a week or two, it started to be the whole arm. It would curl up tight. And then it started to be the right leg. And it would just, it was uh, extremely painful, very short lived. It would just be like 30 seconds and then would release and then everything would be fine. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't tired after I didn't have like a post ictal response, which is more typical of seizures. Um, so finally the neurologist thought, okay, they'll put me on gabapentin for a while. And I don't know whether the gabapentin actually did anything, but eventually they stopped. It took like six, seven weeks of it. But eventually my, the right side of my face also had like grimace and it would hurt so much that I would like when when it happened, my hand would curl. It would actually like cut my fingernails would cut on my hand. It would saw suck, yeah. Open. Um, it was such a strange, strange thing. Yeah, those um, dystonia episodes were extremely unpleasant. That was incredibly painful. I'm so sorry. Um, you mentioned that they had put you on the gabapentin. So do they give, they were never giving that to you beforehand to help with the fibromyalgia pain at all? Bruno did have me. I went through a period where I was having a lot of problems with my tailbone area <laughs> and sitting with pain. The pain um, was so bad. I was like in tears nonstop. It was really nasty um, nerve pain. And she put me into the mindfulness program at Rumsey and um, started me on the gabapentin. And okay. uh, took a while, but it did help. Okay, good to know, good to know. And the mindfulness um, space stress reduction program, how did you find it? And do you still practice that now? So it was a group session. So there were about 15 of us from... Everything from head injury um, patients to um, fibromyalgia to MS. And I think we had a couple of Parkinson's patients as well. And um, it was great because, first of all, having that group of other people go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that happens to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
and in a group, um, having the focus kind of change to like a group. It's it's like just a weird connection when you're all in that space and you're all very mindful of everyone's breaths even Mm -hmm. and having to kind of find that calm center. It was really helpful. And yeah, I do practice it not on a daily basis necessarily. Um, Usually at nighttime, I'll often run through an exercise. So that was the other thing I was going to ask you, how is your sleep and do you, are you able to sleep consistently through the, throughout the night? Better now, better now. Um, I am on Remeron, um, which is, uh, or Mirtazapine, just a very small dose, I think it's 7.5 milligrams, um, that helps me fall asleep and stay asleep at least until six, seven in the morning. So, so you had no side effects to the Remeron? Um, no, not really. It's one of the better ones because I don't feel dopey in the morning on it. I do keep the roll later by my bed if I have to get up to the washroom because it can make me a little bit wonky. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sedating for sure. Yes, yes, it is. It is. I've been on that one before. Um, I came off of it because I had a weird side effect. So I'm glad that works for you because sleep is important for the brain and the body to heal. Yeah, for sure. Yes. So you did mention that you do some type of exercise programs. Are you still going to Rumsey or where are you doing that at this present time? I'm doing it through a private um, program now in Thornhill. It's called NeuroCore and it's just an absolutely fantastic place that they've created there. So it's a neurophysio center. So they have, they specialize in neurological physiotherapy so really yeah it's absolutely outstanding and they've created a wonderful community in there so there's not they have some individual treatment rooms that they use for massage and that but it's almost more like big very bright open gym spaces so you see other people working at it at first i thought oh i don't know but you know what it becomes a big community so everybody's joking around, laughing around, you get to know kind of everybody. And the the physiotherapists are so dedicated and so specialized mm. that when I went to physiotherapy before, that often they specialize in sports physiotherapy or car accidents or whatever, or golf injuries. And with any kind of neurological injury they have to know when to push and when to not fatigue you and what kind of exercises what to do with gait and balance and um, they're just they're outstanding absolutely so is there are there any specific techniques that they use or they just have a specific set structured type of physiotherapy program that is geared to anyone with any type of neurological condition or ones that's specific for MS, for um, functional neurological disorder, et cetera? Very individualized. So Uh. they have patients in there. Um, They have Parkinson's, a lot of MS patients. Uh Spinal cord injury people there. So there's a lot of people in wheelchairs, the equipment, there's adaptive equipment in there that, you know, can be used 
you know, different stages of mobility. So sometimes I'll be seated, but working on a ski machine with my arms. Um, they have a treadmill with a harness. They have very specialized equipment. And uh, Ali, the assistant that I see, also runs an adaptive sporting program so she can do um, skiing and things like that for oh, wow. issues. Uh, I see people doing like boxing and, and stuff with uh, balance issues. So they have a wide variety of different programs that they can specialize and cater depending on what you want to do, what your goals are. And um, they've, I think, I believe they've kept me walking this long. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm just going to ask you to repeat the name of that physiotherapy clinic as, as again, if you don't mind. NeuroCore um, Pilates and Physiotherapy. They do have Pilates equipment there that one is raised Pilates. Um, I can't remember what the name of the equipment is, but they can use it for people who are in wheelchairs as well as um, who are ambulatory. Okay. That sounds like an amazing program. It's funny. I was just speaking with someone just recently and I was stating, telling her that if she can get her Pilates certification to be able to help people with various chronic complex medical conditions, it makes such an impact and change. Like even for the fibromyalgia, you know, there's um, women that are, or I should say instructors that are certified to help people with fibromyalgia, with MS, and it makes such a difference. Oh, wow. I'm so glad to hear that. So glad to hear that. Another question I have for you, when it comes to health challenges, and you were mentioning about your, your husband and your children, I know when initially happened, it must have been an extreme shock for your husband and for your children. And if you don't mind me asking, were your children quite young at the time or um, like in grade school? Adam was in grade five. Daniel was in kindergarten. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So how did it affect your husband in managing you with everything? And how did your children adapt and change? to or adapt to your situation? I mean, it was hard for my husband. It was, you know, a lot of worry trying to keep his business running. Mm-hmm. I was, I had my aunties, <laughs> my group of aunties kind of circled around and they provided so much support for us getting through that. You know, my two of my aunts used to pick the kids up from school um, bring them home. If I was in hospital, they'd, you know, be looking after them. And I couldn't have done it without them, really. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, wider family circle to be able to care for all this, especially in the early years. As the kids got older, you know, and they're more independent, it was, you know, easier for them to function. Sorry? When I was sick, it was easier for the family union unit to function once they got a bit older. Yes, yes. And the the benefits, funny enough, that because your children were so young, you said the other one, the youngest was in kindergarten, correct? Then they're able to grow and know you as this person. It's not like it's such a huge shift and they're used to seeing you one way. For your eldest, maybe that may have been a, a hard shift for her. How how was that for her? I should just ask you, how was that for your eldest? 
Yeah, it affected them in different ways, for sure. The youngest was very anxious. He became extremely anxious in school and that was difficult. Madeline, the, the it was more sadness, I think, right? But they they coped really well considering, I think, because of those aunties being there. You know, they love they love their aunts. And my mom also at that time still being there to help a lot. We did get everyone into uh, counseling early on. And I would recommend that if somebody's watching and they have kids, get them in and talking to somebody where they can talk, where they're not afraid of hurting your feelings, where the focus is on their feelings and without them feeling um, afraid to talk about what concerning what their fears are mm-hmm. and, and not wait. Right. You were saying to not wait to have to go and see someone to be able to see a counselor or a psychiatrist or psychologist. After diagnosis, mm-hmm. if you can access that and because um, getting the therapy is still covered by OHIP until those kids are 16. Anybody I talk to so many parents who their kids get into later, like high school. And they can't find anybody, and that then you start seeing bigger problems manifest. And if you can get in and be proactive, and that those kids feel, that, you know, they can talk about what's happening and in an appropriate age-based way, they just play games with him and and found and found a way through, and they both adjusted, and they both turned out to be compassionate, lovely people. No, that is wonderful. That is wonderful to hear. So this having the counseling sessions, I mean, it helped your children, it helped your husband, but I guess it helped you as well to transition. Yeah, I mean, my counseling didn't come until much later. Most of it in those years was focused on the kids. It's a lot harder as an adult. Through the Rumsey Center, if uh, you go into their program, which is three days a week for, I think it was like 12 weeks. Half the morning is spent on the physical therapy end of it. The other half of the day is spent on like occupational therapy, psychotherapy, and pain reduction programs and things like that. So that's a a good way. And it's a completely OHIP funded program. Well, that's wonderful. And you can often repeat it. So as long as Dr. Bruno um, or whoever the physiatrist is, I think they have to do there now, recommends, you can go back into the program again. And sometimes they have little mini programs. At one point, I had to do speech therapy there. Again, amazing people, amazing program, very passionate. So just thinking what you were mentioning that in the beginning, you started off just focusing, which is all of us have, you focus on addressing, getting the rehabilitation, getting the medications um, happening to be able to help to get you to a balance point. But as you're going through this, I'm just thinking your mental health, that sudden shift from feeling like you were a normal person. And now it's almost like mourning the loss 
of who you once were. And sometimes you're thrown into it. So you don't really have time to think about it. But at the same time, it takes a toll on your mental health. How did you manage that into the transition until you started getting counseling for that? Yeah, well, the, initially, the, the first year, it was like that shock. And then, I mean, losing a career too, right mm-hmm. off the ever going to be able to return to this? What am I going to do? Um, and with MS, unlike like often when somebody has a car accident, they become quadriplegic or paraplegic. It's they go from one state to another right away. With MS, it can be a day to day, like you never know what to expect. So mm-hmm. you go to the point and then you recover a little bit and it's like hopeful and then slam. And so it's a constant process of going from one state another and having to adjust and redo things differently all over again so um that causes anxiety and that's probably more than depression I think depression hit in the first year or two when I was losing that career and a sense of identity because as a teacher my identity was closely tied to teaching and the kids and and that was like an awful loss um and and then it was the anxiety though that comes through even more now uh where i become hyper vigilant of everything even driving in a car i'm always waiting for a shoe to fall from some disaster so my poor husband <laughs> a passenger in the car i'm like what? look out look out <laughs> You start breaking. (laughs) Always, you know, waiting for something to fall apart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not easy. And so how many years until, well, first of all, for the anxiety, did they put you on any additional prescription? I know they tend to pile on the prescriptions, but I mean, in your case, sometimes you have to stop one to be able to keep the other going to because some of them are contraindicative it put me on out of van off through the years my concern with that especially with my mom having alzheimer's is the link to alzheimer's so um i don't really like to take that one but sometimes it's just necessary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know this being in a constantly anxious state yes good thing for physically or your heart or anything else right 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 and um so and then at some point you said you started seeking counseling was this something that the rumsey program provided for you or is this something that you sought out externally offered cbd uh yes cbt sorry yes cbt i know what you meant i was about to correct you but yes cbt exactly cognitive behavioral therapy yes and how did you find because because you did the mindfulness before you did the cbt correct i was doing it almost simultaneously Mm -hmm. i'd have a you know an hour of cbt and then we do mindfulness and then i go to speech therapy and i go to occupational therapy so you're moving around in the same building to these different things and having your lunch with the other other uh, participants and how have you found are you on an ongoing um 
maintenance program with the CBT or is it something where they just had the program and then you completed it and you just kind of do your own thing separately? I can probably, if I need to go again, it wouldn't be too difficult. I'd make an appointment and then she would recommend either I have just the CBT or usually it comes as part of the whole program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's usually part of like a package you sign on. Sometimes they have the mini, little mini kind of refreshers or they'll bring in for like, you know, two, three weeks to do a refresher on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But early, it's a, like a longer, more intense program. So with your condition, I mean, you're living with it for many years now. How, your children were quite young when you were first diagnosed, but how have you approached parenting, you know, now with your condition? How did, like, I mean... Yeah. How did you, how have you approached parenting differently from before, beforehand? Well, in some ways, although I lost my career to be at home raising my kids during years, I wouldn't have been because, you know, in teaching, I was putting in, you know, long days often, but I did have a chance to be home with them during mm-hmm. those years. And so I just tried to find joy in that. And sometimes when I was just really ill you know the kids would just climb into bed with a book or we I remember one Christmas uh, just n- not physically in good shape and uh, just watching um, the TV binging for <laughs> series binging for like two weeks you know and we just try to we try to find those what you can do yes and I, find Sorry, go ahead. So when I was well and there was a school trip, if I could do it, I'd do it. If I did it on my scooter, I'd have to sometimes, you know, finagle with school admin and say, I'd like to go on this field trip, but I can't go on the bus. I have to meet them there on my scooter. Can I do that? And sometimes it'd be, oh, well, we don't know how the procedure goes. We go, and Sometimes you just have to push and be adamant and go, no, I need to be on this school. My son's health, you have to push. And then I would just meet them there with it, whatever device I was having to walk with. Good, good, good. So it's just really about finding the joy, you know, and they say making, take lemons and make lemonade, but just really finding the joy in life in this new norm. Yeah, sometimes... you know, it's definitely different. And I went to Paris with my daughter when she was 18. There were things I couldn't do. Like I couldn't, you know, walk up to the top of Notre Dame or things that I couldn't do. Um, But the little things, sometimes you just sit in the park and you notice the things that you wouldn't if you were in a hurry doing something else. So Mm -hmm. and sitting on the park, and, you know, watching people or sitting in a cafe, you just see it on a different level sometimes. And, and you find joy where you, you can. Yes. Yes. And that's really important. Okay. Okay. So with Dr. Um, Bruno or whoever, whichever other doctors that you're currently seeing, have you incorporated any integrated medicine, naturopathic, holistic treatments? I have on several occasions, not with Dr. Bruno, because she's pretty like straight science. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I did see a naturopath for a while um, when I had a, a bowel abscess that landed me in hospital for a long time, a really long time, because I caught C. diff from oh, the wow. I was in for four months with that one. And I saw a naturopath when I came out to try to figure out how to, you know, build my system back in. And and that was helpful for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of diet, there's been so many conflicting things out there with MS that I think it just comes down to eating properly, Mm -hmm. eating healthy food. It becomes so expensive, a lot of these diets. I know yes. there was, um, which costs a fortune if you're having to eat only organic food and grass-fed, you know, meats and things like that. It's excruciatingly expensive on top of COVID and the grocery prices and delivery prices to have, I need my groceries delivered. My husband also isn't well. He has his own issues. He has spinal stenosis. So his walking isn't good. So when my daughter is able to, she will do groceries for us. Um, but I have them delivered. So that just puts grocery prices up. It makes it astronomical. So eating well is is critical, but sometimes following these diets isn't realistic for uh, those of us on fixed incomes. So on my private insurance, I'm lucky to have any private insurance. It's very limited in the amount that you can access per year. Right, right. $500 for a naturopath, which will cover like sessions and the vitamins that you get when you leave if you're lucky. So, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So I tend to stick with, my doctor's advice and I don't seek other than the physiotherapy which has been central I haven't gone for a lot of other therapies but I did acupuncture that was brutal because if you're sensitive to trigger points and stuff the last thing I want is somebody sticking something into my skin I'm so hypersensitive to touch that I just about went through the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. It took me years, years, I think well over a decade um, or no, about 15 years before I could actually push to get through acupuncture. And they're like, Michelle, because of a specific situation, you really need to. And you just hear me screaming. You're like, oh, my God, it sounds like someone's killing you. But it's that's how sensitive it is. And I'm like, I'm sensitive, very sensitive because of the fibromyalgia. And then you got the two combined aye, aye, aye. Ah. can't stand even massage therapy I can't stand it I can't stand anybody touching my legs especially um or my arms my yeah. upper arm I can't stand physiotherapy um Ali has weight because she'll cue certain muscles like to move them so that I can find where I am in space because sometimes it's hard to tell them you know, they want your arm to move a certain way. So she'll have to cue me and put her fingers and cue where a muscle is. And she's come to understand how much of that I can tolerate. But even on a neuro exam, I can find that incredibly painful, which completely confuses most neurologists. 
That shouldn't hurt. It does. I'm telling you, it hurts. It's going to hurt because of the fibromyalgia. Yeah, I don't think neurologists are up on the fibromyalgia. Uh, it's funny, every time I've had to get reassessed, whether it's a neurologist or a physiatrist, and the one thing they say is we're trying to not cause a flare-up. And a lot of times afterwards, it causes a flare-up. And I, it took me, again, like years before I could actually go for massage. And they were like, you have, I said, I would, we would have to figure out where you could actually touch and it would still be screaming. And I would have to like very like scream and bear it. And then we had to figure out, okay, what works? It still is excruciating, but just how the muscles, my muscles were acting up, it was needed. But for me, is that light touch or even like I have my fan on because it's, it's hot in here, but even that fan on the skin, that burning feeling, it's just that light thing. It's like, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's excruciating. So I am so sorry. <laughs> it can be worse than an actual pressure. Yes, exactly. That light breeze or that light touch is worse than the actual pressure. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for expressing that. Clothing textures. <gasps> It's it's great. Like things like uh, jeans. I can't wear jeans anymore, especially uh, in the winter because that cotton is cold. So cold, rougher textures just drive me crazy. If you're going to, I love jeans, but it hurts. But my vanity <laughs> kicks in. <laughs> but in the winter time, I like even right now, I have on the big, the biggest pants just to be able to not have it touch my skin as much. But I wear something that's kind of very warm. And even though it's still painful to wear, but more soft just to separate the two textures because it, it it's painful. Even a bra, it is excruciating. Like ever to find one. Honestly, like. I'll be, I'll be blunt as soon as I'm done with this interview, <laughs> I'm taking it off because it hurts. Even your own underwear, a belt, even your socks, the shoes. It's. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I'm, I've never been a fashion maven from the beginning. So at least that part of my identity hasn't been too wounded by it. But I find just like leggings are the best for me that are just soft leggings, uh, baggy shirts, baggy T-shirts, um, flannel sheets. I can't send cold, crisp cotton. I can't do on the bed. It has to be like flannel or something very, very soft. Soft, Yes. Yeah. The thread counts, the softness of the sheets makes a difference. Even how the mattresses, how you lie on it because... It's excruciating just even to lie down. I remember I was explaining to someone, I said, I just wish I could just float, float naked. (laughs) And I would be happy. (laughs) You remember the story, the princess and the pea? Yes, yes. (laughs) I gave that example to someone years ago. I said, do you remember that story? I said, even on the mattress, that slight difference, I can feel it. I go, I feel like the princess and the pea. Thank you. I'm not the only one that feels this way. Yes, it's true. So true. And I have, I have to have, there's got to be eight pillows in my bed that every night, my poor husband, because he, he lays very flat. I'm a mountain of, you know, pillows, different pillows. I, you know, I'm always on a search for the perfect pillow. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is a common thing that everyone says in the fibromyalgia community. We have all these pillows, the body pillow. Like even me last night, I had like about three or four different pillows and I still have my long body pillow because it just gives you that little ease. Yeah. He moved back from North Carolina for a while and he bought a purple mattress down in the States called purple mattress. And he brought it home and uh, left it in his room. And every once in a while, like, oh, I'm just going to take over. He's he's moved out again, but he left the mattress. I yeah. just moved that. <laughs> so in, with, with the support that you have, you have your family support, you have your auntie support and um, the different practitioners. Are there any social media groups that you go to help seek wisdom and continue to give you updated advice? There's a couple of... Um, like on Twitter, a couple of um, like uh, neurologists and there's a site called MS News that I follow. The problem with a lot of the MS groups online is that security of information can be an And I did meet a lot of people with MS locally that were all still friends and we get together for lunch, although we don't go on the website anymore but um years ago back in 2000 there was a site called uh, the massachusetts general hospital mgh that had a really good group but then it was kind of infiltrated with um we found out it was a study that the owner of the site was doing without our consent where people had multiple user identities and he thought that this was like an interesting thing to study but sometimes one person would have 21 different identities on the site. And we, some of us started to figure out that there was something really weird going on. And so you, you just couldn't trust kind of the integrity and the honesty of letting yourself out there when there was another underlying purpose for getting this information and your reactions to it. Yeah, it was really weird for a while. That's very sad to hear. I know with um, a lot of the uh, Facebook pages that they provide a lot of support, um, some of them are private and you have to go through a lot of the questions to be able to confirm that you are who you are and you are there for the right reasons. Um, and um, they, you know, the administrators try to look over to see what's going on so that if you are not even stating the right things or um or promoting things that you shouldn't be then they will you know ban you or they will stop um close your whatever that uh post that you had listed but that's very scary because you want to feel confident to be able to share your experience and realize oh you know this person seeing this doctor this person seeing that doctor or this treatment and just to be able to share candidly but um that's that's very disappointing yeah and i mean it's hard some people will have a great experience with one doctor and they, you know, will bond with them mm-hmm. and other disastrous experiences too. So sometimes you have to, you know, weigh uh, that as well, that because everybody's so individual with their MS experience that that can get in the way Sometimes you don't even know if somebody has a diagnosis. We often found that we get a lot of people who hadn't had diagnoses yet that were searching for answers. Okay. Um, but 
they'd be so anxious. And I mean, some of us on that group were very disabled. And so for a new person coming in, you could just see that this was not safe for them either. It was not safe for them at that level to feel, especially my experience as somebody with 24 years, as opposed to someone coming in now who is 20 years old and has completely different medical medicine options and treatment options that are a lot more hopeful that Mm. during a group of us who are in our late fifties and sixties, who aren't going to be able to access those treatments now and have a lot of damage is very devastating for those young people. And if there's a young person listening to this, I, I want them to understand that the what they can access now to listen to the neurologist to try to understand the science behind the newer medications for MS, that they have better than any generation before of not being disabled, of not having the level of physical distance disability and cognitive disability that many of us in our 50s, 60s, and 70s have gone through. It's a lot more hopeful for them and to hang on, to have a family, that they'll be able to do that. And I don't want them to have their dreams dashed by being in a group where people are um, very disabled and, and ill. It's yes. not just it's illness, you know, disability. I, I could have handled going back teaching in a wheelchair. That wasn't the issue. It was the illness, the constant illness, the cognitive impact. Those, right. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's funny. Um, people don't realize how much the cognitive impact, the physical pain, uh, um, I remember uh, I'm I'm an Aquafit instructor and land therapist instructor for people with arthritis under the arthritis belt. And one of the things that they teach us is that you could see a person who looks completely normal standing and you'd see someone who who's bent over and the person who's bent over has no pain, can still get around. You think, oh, my gosh, they're in the worst case. And the person who looks normal is in severe pain and is debilitated because of that. And yeah, people don't seem to realize that that illness, that type of pain, the cognitive issues, the fatigue, and how debilitating that fatigue, pain, and cognitive issues can impact a person's body. It's it's something, it's one of the reasons why I even decided to do this podcast, but it's it's something that people have to be aware of. It's not always what you can see. And it's true. If you could go back to work in your wheelchair, not a problem. You know, at least you'd make that adjustment. It's still hard. Oh, it is hard. Yeah, but it, yeah. It, and um, I would have done it in a heartbeat, um, but it wouldn't have been fair to my students. Uh, the fatigue, uh, you know, having to mark a paper, you know, it, it takes a lot of energy. And I was sick. I was in and out of hospital. So it wouldn't have been fair. I, I would have had supply teachers in endlessly. It wouldn't have been fair to my colleagues. Uh, yeah. Fair. yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Um, 
one last question that I have for you. Are there any MS neuro, neurological doctors that you'd recommend that you know of off the top of your head? So I've switched because um, my neurologist that I had for many, many years, Dr. O'Connor, retired. And, you know, and there's a case where, I mean, he really is responsible for me still walking today because he was so heavily aggressive with treatments that were toxic, likely. But we weighed that risk versus benefit. I just said to him, I, I need to get these kids raised. <laughs> Let's like do what we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but another patient, a lot of other patients couldn't stand him. So, you know, some people loved him and some couldn't stand him at all. He's retired, but there was a, a big shakeup at St. Mike's. Uh, they have a new MS center there. And so all of his patients, when he left very abruptly, they had to take thousands and disperse them across the system. So I haven't seen my current neurologist is fine, but he didn't hasn't seen me through the whole you know process. And it's very secondary progressive. But mm-hmm. honestly, they for me until unless they come out with some drug and ram it through a study really quickly, you can take you know new drugs 15, 20 years of development. Get all the way through to the patients. So there's not much neurologists can really do for me. Mm-hmm. Um, diagnose. There's like wonderful neurologists, uh, Doctor O. I think. Doctor Co. You said. H. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And which hospital that. does she work out of? St. Mike's. Oh, St. Uh, Mike's MS Clinic. Okay. Yeah, I'd say. They've got a number of really good neurologists down there mm-hmm. and work out with someone that you're, you're not bonding with them, which like, you know, it, it takes a long time to see someone down there. The waiting list is long, but switch if you're not comfortable, you have to have somebody who you can trust their opinion with It's going to be a, respectful uh, and listen to what you're saying and if you don't have that relationship switch earlier rather than later yeah 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 that, that that does make sense that does make sense dale thank you so much for taking the time to share your life your lived experience with us here at freedom to know wellness it's been an eye-opener to hear your life and your experience and it's been very informative and educational to myself and I believe to all our listeners here thank you again and to our listeners as I always close reading information is one thing but listening to a person's lived experience is another and paramount and that's what we do here at freedom to know wellness thank you and be well thank you for listening to this episode to have your voice heard on Freedom to Know Wellness, email us at info at freedomtoknowwellness.ca. For content like this and more, subscribe to the Freedom to Know Wellness blog at freedomtoknowwellness at substack.com. And for more podcasts, follow our FTK Wellness YouTube channel and find Freedom to Know Wellness on all major podcast platforms. And don't forget us on social media at FTK Wellness.